I found myself one more time in the car, and the compass direction was north. I was heading toward the Adirondacks to meet up with a friend. This friend happens to be the guest on the podcast today. By the way, my name is J.P. Ross, and welcome to the new In the Seam podcast. We've gone through a little bit of a revision, and I hope that you like it. I don't know if you've had the same problem that I've had, but I'm I'm finding out that going out into the wilderness, going out into nature, is more difficult than usual, and I think it's because of the time of my life that I'm in. And I started to think about this pretty significantly, and what I realize is that there's a there's a stress of going in because you're leaving your loved ones um, behind and you might be off grid and they can't get a hold of you. And it takes you time to kind of like decompress. And I call that the entry and the stress of entry. And then once you're in there, you can find peace. It takes a second to find it. But then when you come out, you've got to deal with re-entry. So today we're going to talk with Keith and we're going to talk a little bit about the stresses of, of, uh, entry and exit and the stresses of what the environment is experiencing right now based on the amount of people that are using it. We talk about the shockwave principle and you'll hear about it. And Keith also talks about the importance of being outside for humans in general. And as a doctor at Cornell, he's got some great stuff to talk about. So anyway, once again, this is Jordan Ross, JP Ross. This is in the same podcast. And we're going to start with a story about me heading up north to meet Keith at his cabin. Thanks for joining us today. So I headed up north like I usually do. I, for some reason, I think my compass usually takes me to the Adirondacks. And I was looking forward to meeting Keith at his cabin. I knew the conversation was mostly going to revolve around land management and land management history of the United States because we had talked about that at one of the uh, trial power events that we had, uh, I think, pre-COVID. So I wanted Keith to talk about that because he had a lot of knowledge about the U.S. interior and, and things. So I pulled up. Uh, It was early, early spring. There was still a lot of snow on the ground, and I was pretty certain that we weren't going to fish, although I brought gear. It was still too cold, Um, so up here in the Adirondacks, usually when the water is too cold, uh, like in the 30s, fish just don't bite. So anyway, we set up the cameras and set up the... um, recording device and we got started and this is the podcast with Keith Titball. I hope you enjoy it. Alright. So Keith, welcome to In the Scene Podcast. Thank Cheers. You. Pleasure to be here with you. Keith? I love the podcast. I'm, I'm actually very honored to be a part of it. Today. Well Thank it's you. it's an honor to be a friend of yours. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming up you know allowing me to come up here. Um so uh the way I always do these, I know you've, you've listened to this, the first thing we do to kind of get 
little comfortables, you talking about yourself. So I'd like you to introduce yourself. You, you carry many, many hats. In fact, I appreciate the hat that you're wearing right now, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> in honor of the occasion, this is my favorite hat. Um, I, I have a story about this hat, actually. Maybe I'll get into it later that has to do with my one of the, the hats that I wear, which is my military one. But I'll start with what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, I work at Cornell University. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Natural Resources and Environment. And I am a social scientist. I focus on the human dimensions of natural resources management, which means what are people doing, what are their behaviors, attitudes, motivations, relationships with the other humans and the rest of nature. And I'm really focused on um, the human dimensions of social ecological system resilience, which is a lot of words, which basically means how can we think about ourselves more as humans in nature rather than humans lording over nature or some other relationship with the rest of nature. And I, and I look at that through a number of lenses on a number of different projects to include work with our favorite fish, the brook trout. Um, I also, as, as you mentioned, am, uh, serve in the military, in the New York Guard, which is our state defense force. Prior to serving in, in the New York Guard, I served in the U.S. Army Infantry in the National Guard and in the, in the Reserves as an infantry officer and an enlisted person before that. I guess a few other hats that I wear are around conservation activity. Um, I'm the vice president of the New York State Conservation Council. I'm the vice president for Trout Power, which is a great honor. I'm very involved in Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited as a vice president of their state group. So um, the, the red thread, if you will, in terms of my who I am is that I'm uh, passionate about conservation and I'm passionate about escaping the problems of anthropocentric views, thinking about ourselves instead of the rest of nature. So I didn't tee you up for this question, but I'm going to ask you, you've been doing this a while in regards to um, the multiple hats and at Cornell and being involved. How long has that been? I've been at Cornell for 20 years. Okay. And prior to that, I was in the in foreign service in the, in the U.S. Department of Agriculture in their foreign service uh, agency doing uh, post-conflict and post-disaster natural resources management. Okay, so my question for for you, which is completely, I'm just coming up with this, okay, is when you and I were involved together doing some work with the state recently for the Trout Stream Management Plan, in regards to history and time, that's like a blip. Yes. It's not that far away. Okay? Yeah, that was just yesterday, it feels like. Yeah, it feels like yesterday. So my question to you is, in regards to all the time that you've been doing this, how have things changed in regards to getting stuff done in mm. the 20 years? I'm curious. In some ways, I think things have, have gotten better, and in, in, in a lot of ways, things have gotten worse. Um, in terms of what's gotten better, I think that, especially after coming out of the pandemic, people are more attuned to one of the ideas that I research and write about a lot, I call it urgent biophilia, and that is that our survival as a species requires us to interact with nature. It, we, are, we have an affinity, a love for the rest of nature, and we want to go find it. And, and that idea is percolating even in the bureaucracies of wildlife management, fisheries management, maybe even to the point where you know, it's possible for us to love nature to death. Uh, but that, so in that sense, especially after the pandemic, some things are easier to get done. On the flip side of that, though, with our current politics and the sort of 
uh, vitriol that's out there and animosity that seems to be on both sides of the political aisle. Unfortunately, there's only two sides and I've got a whole lots of stories to tell about my problems with the bicameral two-party system in this country, but that's another another podcast probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that is making things a lot harder to get done. Um, even even the, the smallest things like um, policies having to do with, you know, when should we start hunting deer in the morning? Um, it turned these things turn into arguments about you know what color party are you voting for, which is unfortunate and that really gets in the way of, of collaborative management or collaborative enjoyment or collaborative recreation. So in that sense, it's unfortunate that that's bad, but I don't I'm, I'm not fatalist. I don't think that's forever. Mm-hmm. I think we can get past that. Okay. So you you talked about you just said said uh, loving nature to death. So one of the things that I mentioned to you that we were going to talk about a little bit is the history of land mm-hmm. in the United States and stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you can, you can listen to what I'm going to ask you in regards to how I feel about some stuff. I recently, I love Ken Burns. If I, if I could take a sabbatical and just do something, I would do documentaries. I love Ken Burns. And, yeah. And, well, you're good at documentaries. And, um, and uh, he did a documentary on Lewis and Clark. And the reason I'm telling the story is because really, Lewis and Clark ventured out west and, and discovered all this land that in the early stages of all the land of the United States, there was a ton of it. There was just so, so much, right? I think it's ironic in regards to the fact that, uh, um, it's ironic and connected to the fact that when Lewis and Clark returned, um, I think it was Lewis, if I'm not mistaken, that had the, uh, the difficulty kind of in regards to reentry. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the two. Don't quote me on this, but but um, all of them seemed to feel like it was an extreme struggle to try to find the the passage, right? But then when they came back, they kind of yearned for being back outside, which is something that you're talking about that we all kind of have that in us. Yes. And more and more as we get older, we go out into the woods, and we realize how much we need to be in the woods, and then we re-enter, we have our re-entry back into our lives. And for some reason, that kind of sucks us back in longer than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So um, I I have a lot of empathy in regards to what those guys went through in regards to their reentry. So so much so that some of them, you know, ended in tragedy that they couldn't deal with it. Um, which speaks to the fact that I think it's in our genetics that we have to be out in a while. Um, which is... You know, this is kind of dramatic in regards to what we're talking about. But the point was, is I wanted to get to the get to you talking a little bit about the United States, and there's a lot of land management in the United States, and I think people listening would enjoy hearing you talk about how land is managed in different ways. It's not just national parks. There's more than that. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? I, w- I would love to, and if if I might, I might if you'll indulge me just briefly to get back to you know Meriwether Lewis and and that bit. I think you're really onto something important in terms of, number one, the sort of post-traumatic stress that those folks in experienced upon re-entry, and it wasn't just because um, the the urban environment that they were returning to was was problematic, although that was part of it. A lot of it was that they really encountered some extremely dangerous, terrifying. They lost members of their team. It was mm-hmm. it was a, a kind of combat, and the reason I I raise that is is part of my work is dealing with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury and other sorts of, of injuries and wounds among combat wounded veterans and the solve often and you know what a lot of my research is focused on and my applied 
work is bringing combat wounded veterans into the outdoors to experience the sort of healing power and therapeutic power of fly fishing, of hunting. And, and intentionally, these are consumptive activities. Not, I, I believe that gardening and lots of those other things are good too, because they get you outdoors, it's nature. There's something in particular about connecting to this visceral humanity of ourselves in nature when, when we're talking about fishing and hunting and, and, and some of the field craft that was required for the Lewis and Clark expedition to, to persist. To your question, and I hope maybe we talk more about that, that stuff later, but to your question in terms of land management, you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition was part of larger uh, enterprises to understand exactly what we had. Um, you know, the United States was in a, a fortunate position to escape a kind of monarchical system that was oppressive to the English settlers and others who came here to make a living. And the founding fathers made some big decisions about what needed to change in their mind, and part of that is reflected now today in the North American game model, the North American model of conservation. Uh, and what they wanted to escape was the idea that the land and the game and the fish were the queens or the kings. Instead, they, they, they posited the idea that the land and the game and the queens should be the peoples. And as a result, there were a number of fits and starts and agencies, you know, in the end, a, a patchwork or quilt if you will, of agencies involved in land management now with different ideas, with different uh, modes. You know, you've got in the Department of Interior, you've got the Bureau of Indian Americans, which is kind of interesting, actually tells us a pretty tragic story about the way we thought of Native Americans on, on, a, on a par with, you know, the National Park Service and the Geologic Survey and there's a tragic story there that we can talk about, but that's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, the Department of Interior also has the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service which manages all of our national wildlife refuges as public land. The Department of Interior has, you know, has the Park Service, which is all of our national parks. Then there are you know, the Bureau of Land Management, another federal agency that has all those BLM lands and grazing lands. And, we're in, in, and then there is a different agency entirely, the United States Department of Agriculture, sister agency to the U.S. Department of Interior, that manages the United States Forest Service and all those U.S. forest lands not to mention the state lands, part of which we're in right now here in the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see that it's, a, it's an intricate, elaborate patchwork of federal agencies all managing public lands for different means and to different ends. Um, parks are parks, and there's not any hunting allowed in parks, and only limited fishing in some cases allowed in national parks, where national forests, hunting and fishing, and other kinds of recreation are encouraged. Um, and that's because philosophically they're managed by different agencies with different objectives. So hopefully that gives a, a little answer. Um, you know, happy to drill down on that, but that's well, kind of the patchwork. Yeah, no, so th so we we actually talked a little bit about this um, before we started the podcast about the Department of Agriculture yeah. managing the, what was, which the was... The U.S. Forest Service, Forest National Forests. And they, re they, re they regard trees as... A crop, a crop. I mean, it, it's so ironic that, that, that you know, and, and I pff, can't bite the hand that, that fed me. I mean, I worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture for a long time, and in some ways, I'm still affiliated with them because Cornell University is a land grant university, and we're all hooked up with USDA by virtue of our ag experiment station and cooperative extension and all of that. So no, no, uh, no shade thrown here on on USDA, but the Forest Service is part of the Department of Agriculture precisely because we have viewed trees for most of our history in the United States as a crop, like 
corn or soybeans or wheat. And so um, thankfully, there were some important folks around the time of, of Teddy Roosevelt's terms as president, uh, Gifford Pinchot and, and Furnow and others that were radicals and they sure. changed the ideas of forestry and they allowed yeah. wise use and some of these other sorts of things in and we stopped thinking about forests as pure monocultures, although there's still some of that. There's a funny story about about the forester Furno, who's who's his name is on our Department of Natural Resources and Environment at Cornell, but we no longer have the forest school. Um, ESF SUNY has uh, has that in Syracuse, and it was because Furno was such a forward-thinking guy that he he misstepped up here in the Adirondacks and did some clear cutting before that was cool, and he clear cut around the camps of some pretty wealthy people. I think perhaps Lieutenant Governor Woodruff might have been one of them, the eventual owner of Camp Kilcare. And uh, they said, this guy's out of his mind. We don't like this clear-cutting stuff. And they yanked the forestry school out of Cornell University, out of the out of the hall that still has his name, Furno's name on it. Is that right? And went to Syracuse University with it. Yeah, so there's a little, I'm not, you know, I'm not bitter, but yeah. So that happened around what time period? In the 1800s. You know, I'd say late 1800s, late 1800s. Early, to early 1900s. Um, we still have, you know, we're still a Department of Natural Resources and the Environment, but the School of Forestry is not at the land grant Cornell anymore. It's, okay. It's at Syracuse ESF. So, so land management over time, I would imagine that the strategy and the goals of those departments have changed. Mm -hmm. As we entered into, initially we had all this land, right? And then we have to decide how we're, how are we going to manage it? Right. And, <laughs> and the, and, and I also, I don't, I'm inferring this. I don't know. It could have been one department, and then it turned into multiple departments because they found that there were more reasons for that. Can you talk a little bit about over time how those departments have changed? Yeah, and you know, essentially the dynamic of more people because you and I are going to talk about yes. the fact that there's more people and we have to deal with the more people in these lands. Well, it's a really insightful questions I think to ask an important one, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I think what's interesting is as our American society marched. West, you know, in the old days, we're drinking Kentucky bourbon right now. Kentucky was the wilderness. I know I'm half, I'm half gone. You're, you're moving out. I guess <laughs> I need to stop talking so much. Uh, in the old days, that was the wilderness, and then, and then the wilderness was across the Mississippi, and then the wild stuff started with Lewis and Clark and all the rest. The, the, the land management agencies reflected the, the, the prime directive of the day. So, in the Department of Interior, the Bureau of Land Management was intended to straighten out all the, the cowboys shooting each other out west over, over grazing rights okay. and water rights. So these huge swaths of public land that were yeah, questionable in terms of how we came into, into possession of them mm -hmm. as a country. Yeah. If, you're, if you're following Native American history, there, there, are, some, there are some issues there. Yeah, right. But in the end, the federal government had some jurisdiction over that and had to create an agency to get this cattle rustling cattle grazing thing under control otherwise everybody was going to graze everything to hell and the water would be screwed up so the bureau of land management was about grazing lands the department of the interior's national park service was actually pretty small in the in the, in the beginning there was the trip that you and i have talked about in the past where roosevelt got you know with Muir and a few others and was saw the grandeur of yosemite and some of those sort of you know the charismatic iconic sort of national parks out west and said, you know, this can't be about use. This needs to be just a park for appreciating beauty. 
And so the National Park Service was, was invented and, and um, brought into existence in order to protect those kinds of jewels, those things that are just, you know, wonders of the world. Then um, there were things that weren't quite at the scale of the National Park, but the president, various presidents wanted to protect them as if they were. So they invented this, this, this concept called a national monument. So the national monuments are under control of the, you know, the park service, but they're not the same land use. They're slightly different than the national parks. And you know, one national monument that's been in the news a lot in the last five to six years is the Bears Ears um, National Monument. Um, so that's a different, and they've got different rules for use there than they do in a regular national park versus a national recreation area, which is another designation under the, the, uh, uh, the park service, which would allow for more, um, what some people call consumptive uses or more pure recreational uses as opposed to just protecting beauty in a national recreation area you may be able to ride a motorcycle or or it's not wilderness so you can use bicycles and horseback riding and what have you so the the the, the bureaucracies that formed around land use tried to recognize what are the particular uses out there and 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 what can we do to protect all of those uses Wilderness came in really late in the game, and and the idea of the of the value of wilderness. Can you can you talk about like time frame wise when wilderness started to come into play? I I think that you the know fifties or probably was being talked about in the fifties, but you know I think the idea really caught fire. I mean it was it was percolating around in agencies, and certainly people were writing about the the importance of untrammeled spaces and the problems of of humans and we can talk later about you know wilderness as a social construct what does it really mean does it reinforce the idea that humans are separate from nature that's a problem that's a different story but i think after rachel carson's silent spring that seminal book the idea of human free lands designated as such really really caught on okay so you saw a wilderness act happen and that it impacted the u.s forest service so there are Forest Service lands that became wilderness designations, and there were lands that are in the Department of Interior's management, as opposed to agriculture, that also became wilderness. And those rules for those places are no motors, no mechanized anything, no wheels. Um, you're not supposed to have bikes in the wilderness areas and no, no flights over them. And then state governments sort of started to mirror that, including New York State with the wilderness areas in the Adirondack Park. So I want to get into Keith. In regards to your opinion of wilderness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. take away. You got to talk about this because of you know mm-hmm. who you work for and all this stuff. What do you think wilderness is? Well, and I've by the way I've experienced wilderness, like we talked before the podcast about how the Florida Keys. I my wife and I love the Florida Keys. We thought we were going to go there. Now it's kind of like there's a lot of people there. There's a ton of guides and stuff. Being in saltwater and being in the Everglades is wilderness. Absolutely. Wilderness doesn't have to necessarily be freshwater, mountains, no. and all this stuff. So I want to know about Keith, how Keith feels about wilderness. Tell me about that. I, I, I have problems with the social construct of wilderness when that's all that can be. Like if you think of wilderness as optimal. Um, can, and you def- can you define it yourself? I... I choose not to because I don't agree with its assumption. I, I don't believe that it's okay for us to create a dichotomy between humans and the rest of nature that we evolved in. Well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to interrupt you for a second. When you go in the woods, 
and you're you leave camp we're gonna leave camp here tomorrow we're gonna go into the woods when do you get to the point where you feel like you're in wilderness are you already in wilderness right now yeah that's that's a really good point I mean it's like the old adage you know pornography when you see it you know define it well you'll know it when you see it um, I think wilderness the the idea of, of places where technology is not happening is not a dominant feature of the landscape is really really important and I crave it but the problem I have is I also fully appreciate and want places like the Moose River Plains where guys can drive their trucks through there and park a camper and people are shooting fireworks because they're experiencing nature too maybe it's not at, at, at the same level on the same spectrum but if you cut that away from them then they're more lost than ever and one of the biggest problems that I, I have and part of the reason I care so much about backcountry brook trout fishing is because most of society seems to be suffering from ecological amnesia. They've forgotten their biological, natural selves, and they've become they've become cyborg. They've become some other thing, and it's not until we help society get over its ecological amnesia, it's not until then that we can actually protect more land, wilderness, or whatever other designation. So there's a kind of a tension there that I'm. I resist wilderness. Here, here's why I resist wilderness, JP. I mean, this, this will, you'll understand this. When lycra-clad lycra uh, hikers from New York City on a trail that is beat down, eroded to hell in the 46, lecture me about nature. You know, and I, I've only been hanging around in the Adirondacks for about 20 years and, 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 and guiding here for a long, long time. And you know, I think I have a couple of skills when it comes to being in the backcountry. When I'm getting lectured by those lycra-clad urbanites about wilderness, I get pissed off. It really, really pisses me off. And, and then I have to step back and say, well, it's good that they're here, though. They, they love this place. They, we need them to love this place. So that tension is, is really why I have a problem with the social construct of wilderness. Now, do I agree with you that I, the further away from all that noise, the further further away from a road, the further away from the sound of a car, the happier I am. Yeah, that's true about me. So it's a dichotomy, it's a tension, and I don't think we're doing ourselves any favor by privileging one way of thinking about nature over another. We just need everybody thinking about nature. Okay. So... (laughs) What an answer, right? No, it's a it's a terrific it's a terrific answer. You should. You I'm should, gonna have more. Of yeah, this you stuff. should have a drink because I'm gonna have to get more in a second, and everyone will enjoy hearing me hearing me uh, pour some more whiskey. So, we're gonna talk about the fact that there are people out in in wilderness or out in nature. Okay. When um, when you and I were younger, we're we're. I'm younger than you, but we're in the same. Yeah, we're in we're the same. same we would we would have thought the same toys were cool when we were young, for sure. Right? Um, Probably even had the same toys. But, yeah, but Masters of the Universe, you know, yeah. Hot Wheels, Big all that wheels, stuff. Right? Actually, Hot Wheels weren't that cool. Did you have a Green match, Machine Matchbox? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we were on the same page. Yeah. So the the point is, is that it's this. Here's the weird part, right? Our our parents' generation was not promoting that much to go outside. Mm. Okay. We are, I believe we are promoting it more. And I'm I'm 45 years old. I got young kids. I was young to uh, to have kids. You're f- what? 50 what? I'm in my 50s. You're in your 50s. Okay. <laughs> your girls are 
older. Yeah, they're in, they're both college age. Okay, and you brought them up to enjoy the outdoors. Because of that, and because other people did, like these like the clad people, they're actually experiencing the outdoors quite a bit more. Yeah. So we've created this monster where our parents really didn't give a shit that much. At least mine didn't really give a shit that much about the outdoors and stuff. We did. It's kind of skipped a generation, I would say. We're promoting the outdoors. Our kids are now going out into the outdoors, and now we go out in the outdoors, and it's a bit more overpopulated. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, Interesting like I said irony, earlier, isn't we're, it? We're loving it to death. Isn't it a weird irony, right? I mean, so so we're gonna, we got to talk about the fact that there's a lot of people outside, and is that okay? Is there room yeah. for them? How do we get into this conversation? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, man. I mean, I, I grew up pretty poor. I mean, I, I my dad was a a minister. I don't think he ever made more than about twenty grand a year for my entire upbringing. So we we bounced around in in the Midwest and lived in the old farmhouse that you know Farmer Joe moved out of because he's moving up in the world and now we're living in it. So the, the outdoors for me as a kid was was the cheapest babysitter there was. I mean, my mom just opened the door and said, get the hell out of here, kick me in the butt. And I spent the day out there, you know. But it was marginal outdoors, right? I mean, it was like suburbia uh, or it was like farmland that wasn't very nice. So I, I, had, I was fortunate to have a grandfather who lived on Lake Superior on the North Shore, had an old hunting cabin. He grew up up there in the North Woods and would always tell these stories. So I was really attracted to that idea. But none of the kids, when I get, when we get plucked out of the Midwest and plopped into Detroit, which is where I spent probably seventh grade all the way through, you know, graduation and on to college. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was heart rendering. It was a terrible, terrible violence to my soul. Um, and I craved any opportunity for anything that even looked like nature. And it was hard to find in Detroit. Um, I ended up spending a lot of time on the Flat Rock River and, and around. And anyway, the point of all this is, I remember how desperately I craved as a, as a youth any opportunity to, to smell water, to feel the shade of a tree, to hear the sound of leaves rattling, yeah. to smell pine. And so I'm, I'm really concerned, I think, like you are. I think we had a little different childhood as far as that you know, exposure to being outside anyway. I wouldn't call it wilderness by any stretch, but it was nature. Mm-hmm. I'm, I share with you a huge concern that you know we, we are seeing, and I've documented this, I've written a bit about it, after the pandemic, you know, we're killing the Adirondacks High Peaks area. We're just crushing it, overusing, overloving it. And, and you know, it's not like, you know, in the 70s when we grew up, population wasn't the same in the world as it is now. No, it's not. So there's, there's a drive for people to go in, in, engage in nature, and there's so many more people. So I think that's a huge concern. I'm not sure what we, what we do about it. On one hand, we want people to care more about it because we have... We have catastrophes right in front of us right now. We've got biodiversity crashes, and we've got climate to worry about. Yet, people are overloving the very over overloving the very resources we want them to fall in love with and protect. So, I, I don't have an answer. Do you think that, um, like, if you if you think about like you know you you there's this explosion, right? And there's a shock wave. These places that people are going into in the outdoors. A lot of the energy that's expelled from the explosion is going out like a mile. Yeah, like a shockwave. And then from like a mile to two miles, it's extremely dissipated. I have noticed that 
if you can get yourself through if you can if you can walk through the shockwave and get to that threshold of let's just say a mile it's like a whole new oh, fucking yeah, world absolutely as a hunter we see this a lot you know you've got to we say those of us that hunt here in the Adirondacks whatever the path or road is that shockwave is real and it's it's experienced by wildlife so if you want to be successful as a as a deer hunter or or what have you bear hunter you better go a mile or two in before you even start worrying about hunting because everything else is being affected by these shock waves that you're i love that analogy all the time and it's just it's not going to work out you're not going to have that have the advantages that we need as paleo hunters um they're not going to it's not going to work in your favor with all those shock waves so i i appreciate that um the problem is, you know, marketing campaigns, right? Everybody wants to sell, you know, I think the worst thing that ever happened to the, the high peaks is the 46ers. Even though I'm trying to be a 46er myself uh, because it's driving all this traffic because people want an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So right. we've got to figure out other ways to spread the traffic out and other accomplishments for people. I think organizations are now doing that here in the Adirondacks with the Saranac Sixers and the Fulton Four and all these things to try to spread the traffic out, the, the, high, the fire tower challenge. But that's not really solving the problem like you're talking about. You, you know, Big Pine Key, down in the Keys, that used to be just wild country, wild country. Yeah, that's where the key deer were. And now it's like Condo City, right? And 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 that was for poor foresight after the hurricanes, and and you know, people mm -hmm. just built because they could. And and this is the problem of constraining capital versus uh, empowering capital which will get us into a huge economic conversation we probably don't want to have because it's not that fun. But, you know... Well, where do you want to take this? You tell know, me. I don't... I just don't know what the answer is. I, I, I think... I think fundamentally for me, we... The biggest problem is that people have forgotten how to be a part of nature. Everybody is just so focused on this... The problem of gods and demons, I call it. Either... Either... They want to be literalist about scripture and say, you know, I'm supposed to steward nature. I'm, I lord over it. I'm special. I'm exempt. Human exemptionalism and human exceptionalism are, I think, kind of, you know, original sin kind of problems. Or we cast ourselves as demons. You know, like people talk about humans as a virus in, on the planet or as some sort of sickness, which that's not right either. And, you know, to me, the... The, the right path and probably the mindset we need to, to solve a lot of these problems you're raising is we have to think of ourselves as part of nature. Yeah, there's no, there's, in my opinion, there's, we're organisms that were created on this planet. Yeah. So, therefore, we should be able to work in balance. Right. Every other organism works in balance. Why wouldn't we work in balance? Right. Because we have this brain. Yeah, we have we have it's you could contemplate that we're over evolved, right, and all this stuff. Now, the the check the checkbox theory or whatever, which I would say is, a lot of people are going into um, into nature, right, into uh, these wild areas mm -hmm. to check the box, really to walk and experience these places. I'm serious, walk the wrong way, okay? Yeah. To get the selfie, to do whatever, to go into this place, and then they check the box, and they don't realize the damage that they're doing, but they're within the shockwave. Yep. 
people, they maybe spread some money around the community when they come down from their hike or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, and that's the, that's the, that's the part that's tough, is because there are people that are trying to make a living, right? And and in the Adirondacks, there's a lot of people that it's really hard for them to make a living, and they really rely on tourism, right? But the same people that are coming in to check the box, to play within the shockwave are beating the shit out of right. it. They're damaging the very resource that the people are trying to... Yeah, I mean, you and I, for for you and I to, to have an experience and um, and to go an hour, an hour and a half and beating the shit out of our body to get to a place where we really don't see any... Not another soul. Not another soul. And no... Right. That's, that's okay with us. Yeah. Right? For other people, 10 minutes is a long time. Especially if there's no cell phone signal. Yeah, you know it's 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 really is it's 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 about not only the the physical distance but the the connectedness now where people are so addicted to this digital connection. So now. I'm gonna pull back the your you know your your job and where where you are at as a professional. Is there hope? I think I think there is hope. Um, I think that you made a statement about being over-evolved. I think the key is, I believe, outside of my professional realm, that we as a species can evolve. This is going to sound kind of utopian. We can evolve to a place where we coexist well with the rest of biological systems and benefit as a species too, which is like 180 degrees from what we're doing right now. We, I think we have, our 99% of our evolutionary history as humans demonstrates that we can and succeed, can and do succeed at adapting to this environment within which we evolved, alongside the brook trout and everything else. We evolved right with all this stuff through this, this grand scheme. And there's no reason to believe that at the last second we're, we, we're, we're doomed to make, you know, fatal choices. I believe that there is hope that we can recover our ecological identities. We can escape ecological amnesia. That thing is the thing that's dripping over there. If you're wondering no, what that noise is. No, just sure we got red lights blinking. We're good. Um, escape I think our ecological... I think, I think you're doing excellent. I love this conversation. Okay. Uh, escape the ecological amnesia. Escape the uh, ecological disenfranchisement and most importantly, escape the toxic anthropocentric bit that we all kind of walk around with and become... What is that? Toxic anthropocentrism? Yeah. Think, looking at the whole world through the eyes of humans only and not experiencing the world the way a brook trout experiences it for a moment and having enough empathy to think, gee whiz, you know, what really sucks is being a brook trout that can't breathe or can't, can't uh, operate because either the water's too acidic or the water's too hot. And who's... Who, Brook trout aren't responsible for that. It's somebody else that did that to them. Right. So getting getting out of that human-centric idea and at least being able to actually take the time to say, how does this experience of the planet feel for that thing? So, what, what are they what is so, that thing So let's so let's talk about brook trout for a second. Okay? Mm-hmm. We're talking where you started trying to empathize. My favorite, my favorite conversation. Good. Me too. <laughs> So you got to understand, we're back in the woods. There's no cell coverage, and we're having this deep conversation, having the 
cup of whiskey or two. And now we're transitioning from talking about humans into the importance of brook trout. And interestingly, it was right around the time that one of the GoPros uh, battery died. So you can hear the beeps in the background. It was like it was meant to be for the conversation to shift. I uh, I rarely catch a brook trout that looks like it's a stocked brook trout. That might be because of the places that I go catch brook trout. It's a good hunch. Okay. Yep. But um, water in general, I think you and I would would both say that if there was and if there was something that we were going to fight for, it wouldn't be the trees, it wouldn't be the ferns, it'd be water, and and fish trout living in water are an indicator that it's beyond just the fact that it's hydrogen and oxygen mixed together that is this thing that creates life there's more to it than that in regards to what we've learned about Mm -hmm. the outdoors right more more shit has to happen we got this more shit has to happen in regards to having life. And to create a brook trout is, like, pretty amazing. It's amazing. Well, the brook trout as a char is is an incredible miracle and, and tells you such an incredible tale about the geomorphology and the geological history of, of North America, or the Northern Hemisphere. Um, it's like the holy grail in my mind. I mean, there, there's just so much there in that one fish. And, you know, I love the phrase that you have, and I'm not going to get this right. You're going to have to correct me about judging the, help me out, judging the quality of the water. Right. Give not, me that phrase again. Right. I, I love this phrase. Right. Not judging the water by its clarity, but by the wild trout that live in it. Yeah. To me, that's, that is, that is the, is essential. That is the essence of a, an, a notion of humans as a part of nature versus some other thing because that is the kind of empathy and care the same kind of care that gardeners use when they you know care about their plants and weed that understanding of the brook trout in, in its place and where it's evolved and adapted and geez I mean think about all the things that the brook trout we catch in the Adirondacks had to have experienced oh, this was an ocean then it wasn't then it was again sure. you know all yeah. this stuff that happened to them uh, and and we get to encounter them when we when when we catch when you and I go to places I'm not going to name names but places where we're finding new heritage strains of brook trout when we put that fish briefly in our hand our wet hand we're we're touching you know back to the Pleistocene we're going so far back mm-hmm. and uh, and that is a fragile fragile precious thing. Not just because of it's a fish and we're fishers, anglers, but because that is the one of the remnants of the creator, of, of the created. That is a remnant of the real deal. Just like we are, except for that we forgot it. Good point. You know? So yeah. I'm with you on on that statement that I'm gonna get burned into my head and, and be able to I, I recently wrote a bio and I, and I invoked that phrase as part of what I want described of the way I look at the world. And I love that phrase. So thank you for it. And thank you for repeating it. I promise I'll have it memorized. That's okay. <laughs> the point is, is, that, is that I will tell you that the, the tannic water of the Adirondacks, if you looked at water and you said to somebody that didn't know anything about water, 
and said, which water is better? Yeah, they this, probably wouldn't pick this glass of clear water or this glass of tannic tea looking water. Which one's better? They would say yeah, the true. clear glass of water. With chlorine in it. That was the I that was the whole purpose is to say that you you know, because the we're we are we're a very small percentage of people in regards to understanding life and understanding the out the outdoors and understanding the outside. Absolutely vanishingly small percentage and that's kind of my crusade right um is to change that um speaking of crusade can i ask you a question of course you can. <laughs> yeah. so there's been some conversation around your your logo mm-hmm. um speaking of crusade and i'm curious you know where you stand right now it's a little weird i'm turning the tables on you but that's okay this is mind. good I, I'm I, I think I might want to. I might want to <laughs> replenish up. that. Well, let me ask the question before we go ahead. Go re-ice. Ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I I'd be happy to tell the story of how I came to JP Ross. I would love to. You. I would please do. And 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 I will. And a lot of that has to do with the the your logo, the shield, your your the the crest. Um, what is that? What is that? What does it mean? Yes. Or what is it? I what mean, does it? What is it? What does it mean to you? And what is it meant to convey? What's the well, message? it's a. It's just a shape. Uh, it's, it's. It's just a bunch of lines and shapes at its. At its most, you know. Um, simplistic form, and I have talked about this before that I started this whole company when I was twenty. And I think I was very much uh, romantic in regards to watching a river runs through it, and. Um, and thinking about what fly fishing was and my and my friends that fly fished which all were dramatically or older than me okay and i was thinking you know no one's going to take me seriously unless it's looks like something that's older you know um at the time um i was a eucharistic minister hmm. i don't know i don't know if you did not know that okay. no, that's interesting yep. so i was very close uh, i went to catholic school stayed i still am very close with my faith I was a Eucharistic minister, and I think that, um, I will be honest with you, that the uh, river runs through it was, had a lot of ties to religion. Yes, of course, the Presbyterian minister and so forth. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, the idea that uh, that Jesus was a, a fisher of men. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that, you know, if, if, I had, um, if I had a logo that made the company look older, um, and hid the fact that there was this 20-year-old that really <laughs> just was a trout bum, that it would be good for marketing. I was, you know, that was the, that was the truth. And, and I got to be honest with you, Keith, I was, in 1994, when I was in study hall in high school, I was drawing pictures of logos, and I was drawing pictures of the, of the shield. That's fascinating. Well, and it makes a lot of sense, given, given your Catholic upbringing, that that, that symbolism would come to you. Um, there are there are some things that you've added so there's there's a lot of heraldry and you know hearkening towards you know the, the cross of saint george and other things that maybe I'll, I'll i'll describe in a minute when i tell you about how i came to meet you cool. but Thanks. um what there are some extra things on your on your shield there's some extra markings that kind of look like i don't know tax or something yeah so i I will say that the that the shield um, at the time of creating the logo, I was also, you know, watching Indiana Jones and and you know I was into all that stuff. Yes. 
And I thought that there needs there needs to be hidden meaning inside this symbol. It needs to be it needs to be some mystery that it means something. Awesome. Okay. Intrigue. So the fact that the cross itself is a cross that doesn't have straight arms, that has uh, it has curved arms, is important. It was it was intentional, mm-hmm. and um, it was intentional uh, based on. I had a book of symbols that my mother gave me, and she didn't. I don't even know if she read it because when I opened it, it would, like creaked when I opened <laughs> it. And I and I, and and I remember seeing a number of things, including this cross pate, which was in there, mm-hmm. which said that this cross with e- with equal arms, with outstretched arcing arms, meant for earth, fire, wind, and water. Oh, interesting. Um, those those elements in the shield are also emphasized in the four bands on the bottom the cross with the um with the outstretching arms also also was a sign of uh, of unity and a sign of direction that that cross was used on on maps mm-hmm. um essentially for north south east and west sure. cardinal directions cardinal being connected to your your faith so i added the nails I added three nails, not four. A lot of people have um, have looked at it and wondered why there's three. The three nails stand for the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still um, I still can't imagine that a man was nailed to a tree. Uh, I just, I mean, crucifixion. If you think about it, is just like it is a horror. Just you've if you've ever stubbed your toe. You know how painful it is. Imagine having your your feet nailed, yeah. right? So, I thought that it was important that um, that that was embedded in that. And I haven't talked about this in 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 twenty four years. This is the twenty fifth year, and I've never really let it all out. Um, the name J P Ross was because I'm Jordan Peter Ross, and now it's interesting because now I have kids, and Parker and Paisley are both P's. And yep. I find it interesting that now um, the whole concept of the shield was that there was this this thing that we could um, get behind. Yeah. That maybe I never thought of my I never thought when I was young that I was a leader, but now actually as I'm older, I realize that I am a leader from the stuff that I've accomplished. In, in and, so many dimensions, you are. And now I realize that creating the shield was. Um, clairvoyant I guess and prescient and you know if, if, if I may before we replenish ice and brown water you know I didn't know you or your company at all um, 15 years ago let's say I happened to be at a Ducks Unlimited banquet and a guy named Dan DeLoyer Dan DeLoyer yeah. good friend of mine and a fraternity brother of mine in some ways he's part of the Lexington uh, triad, which I'm an Alpha Tau Omega, and he's Alpha Kappa. And that's another story. Very, um, very also symbolic, and the Maltese cross is part of our symbolism and and tradition. He handed me a a Parker Brothers fly box, and I'm a big side by side shotgun guy. And Parker is, you know, pretty much creme de la creme. Although I'm an L.C. Smith guy, and I was really impressed with this box, and then in the checkering. And it was beautiful, and it's a fly box, which is really, really cool, because, you know, I'm a huge fly fisherman, air quotes. Um, I turn that thing over, and there's your sticker on the back of that thing. It's, a, it's this, this, this shield. 
And I'm like, huh, I'm a, I've been a, a, an Anglican since I'm about 20 years old. Uh, my family's all from, from England, from the Exmoor Highlands. Um, we very much care about the symbolism of, of the church. And I don't know if you know it, but the Anglican and Episcopal symbol and flag and all that is the same cross yeah and I the do. same color scheme I do know. yeah and uh and and um there is there is a lot of baggage that comes with the crusades and in the in the, the religiosity and the devotion that those men and their and their staffs and um went off to to very fervently defend something they believed with all of themselves and you know i came to know I came to know you and I ended up getting a mirror and then other fly rods and then I discovered trout power and you asked me to be a part of the you know the founding board of directors of that and that's all really important um, and and a hugely cherished part of my life but I'll tell you Jordan that shield that I love seeing on the fly rods that I use especially in the backcountry for brook trout I have thought a lot about that recently, and I, and it, it it represents. And you mentioned the, the the Trinity. Based on all the stuff that I've been saying about humans and nature and where we how we how we fit in, I have come to believe uh, my faith has sort of shifted to where I'm kind of more into what would be considered like the the Christian mystics, Christian mysticism, and maybe that's a hybrid with like animism, like Shintoism, and. And I'm comfortable with all that in terms of my faith. But what I recognize that really resonates with me in your shield is now in my mind, the Trinity is God, the creator, the created and the creation. And like the crusaders who, who drew, drew strength from that image, from that flag, from that idea that they would give of themselves entirely for their faith. I think that your shield on these fly rods and the and the idea that this is a an instrument by which one enters into these sacred spaces is couldn't be more important as we think about the 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 experience that is needed by every human being on this planet to get out of the trap of the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene and get into the idea of getting becoming one with the creator the created and the creation that trinity and it's all in in your symbol so i i gotta tell you man that you know maybe there's been critiques of your of your symbolism i think it's 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 apropos for who we need to be as a, a species in the 21st century frankly so i'm um i applaud applaud that you've stuck with that and I, I appreciate that it's grounded in your faith. I also appreciate that there is a little Indiana Jones in there. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I just, I, you know, maybe, maybe this doesn't put the baby to, to, to bed, but I hope you never change that symbol. I, I hope you stick with that because it really is meaningful to me. And I have a feeling it's meaningful to lots of other people too. Not probably the way I just described it, but people will have their meaning. And, and I think that, you know, you are helping people find themselves in nature in ways that they otherwise might might not. Well, I um, I appreciate that very much. I 
I'm glad the cameras are off because I'm getting choked up. Um, because um, I guess as you get older, you start thinking about your purpose. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, what you're articulating is what um, I now realize. Um, it's why I, why I did it. You why mentioned I, the word clairvoyant. You were called. Well, why don't you talk about Trout Power? <laughs> I suppose I shouldn't be embarrassed for getting a little choked up for Keith telling me that, uh, thanking me. But you got to understand, after 25 years, every once in a while, there's some email or some asshole that tells me that my symbol that I believe is a symbol of uh, of a brotherhood. They tell me that uh, it's a symbol of being a Nazi or something. I just it it bothers me so. But I'm not changing the shield. To you. And, and I think the uh, the vision that you had for Trout Power is so awesome. I mean, again, I I was like, this dude makes fly rides. When I looked up your J.P. Ross and that shield was on the back of that really cool fly box. And I was like, hey, man, can you make me a, a fly rod that will work for me to sling giant hardware around ponds, you know, at ice out in the Adirondacks? And we talked. And I think we were pretty close to actually designing something for that purpose. And then you came out with the mirror, which was this samurai sword level of of totemic, you know, talisman object that was so I had to have that thing. And and, and as soon as I had it. Um, I started following your social media, and before I knew it, there was the Great Camp Sagamore and the, and the first Trout Power there. Right. And 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 you and I actually met actually before that, because there was a, a tiny flaw in the mirror that that I originally got, and you would not rest until you found me, and got it from me and replaced it. I think it was. Everybody does this. You spelled my name K I E T H instead of K E I T H, which is the Scottish spelling for it. Scott's spelling for it. And so I met you actually the first time in a parking lot at yeah. the Bass Pro Shops. Right, in right, right. Yeah, yeah. I was really impressed with your Jeep, by the way. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and then I met you again at, at Great Camp Sagamore. And I tell you what, man, it was impressive to see the way that you motivated a ragtag group of very, very disparate, different types of people from different places to all go out and and get on board with your vision. You had read Gerster, which is a huge gift in my life, which I will always be indebted to you for. Um, you had read uh, Arpad Gerster's notes in the Adirondacks. You had some hypotheses. You were prepared to action them. You were ready to get into genetics before anybody else was talking about it. And I was like, bro, th this dude may not have a bunch of letters after his name, but I'm ready to follow this guy. And, and I did. And, and have been ever since. Um, sometimes you and I have butted heads in the past, and I think that's the way it works when you're, you know, your middle name is Peter. Uh, that's the way it goes. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, I mean you're, you're supposed to be the rock, so, you know, hang on sometimes. No. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think, I think the idea really... The balance, by the way, between the two of us is that I, you know, you, you do come from a background you know, at Cornell and all this stuff. And, and I come from a little bit of a, of a 
background of being an entrepreneur and and being a little more radical and stuff like that so the so the the um the median of that is usually a pretty good outcome absolutely i, I covet it so though. yeah we I, I if we don't if we don't if we don't butt heads a little bit once in a while then i would say that we're not on the cutting edge i think that's really fair and and, and it, i think it's it basically sums up the last probably 10 years of, of you know i think we've been we've known each other about 10 years now yeah. and and been working together nine of those years probably but uh, you know the point of all that long diatribe there was to say that you know what you created what your vision was for trout power and the way it's grown into its own thing now and in something you should be really proud of i hope you are um it is because of those original visions because of that that 20 year old who had those ideas and 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 was attempting to be relevant and um, accepted by you know the, the fly fishing still today you know we're old but these guys are old you know the fly fishing community is, oh, yeah. is not getting any younger unfortunately yeah. um, and you somehow actually attracted a whole lot of youth and are still attracting a lot of youth by virtue of both your brand and and the and trout power which is an outgrowth of your passion and your creativity so I mean all of that questioning about your 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 shield and and this conversation is really just a, a way a long-winded way which i'm accused of often comes with the territory of saying thank you because i don't think uh i don't think you get thanked enough for what you've done both for for trout power and for what these these things that aren't just fly rods they're not just utility tools they're objects they're they're Talismans. They're like I mentioned uh, in a conversation. The staffs that we hear in the Old Testament that are so important that do so many things, like part C's and and you know convince kings that. They're... Keith's been really nice talking about this whole thing. Like I actually had a true vision of what it was going to become with trout power, but the truth is, if you're out there and you think that you can create something, if you can get five to ten people to work with you and believe in the same mission, you're going to accomplish something. Don't get me wrong, you have to have a vision, but more importantly, you have to believe. I think that is why, um, I think that's why that the, uh, the creation of the, of the, of the rods, of the, of the poles, I used to hate saying poles, right? <laughs> now I enjoy saying poles because it's kind of funny because, yeah. but, um, people that, um, people that have, the J.P. Ross rods, and they wear the hat, they, and they are proud of the shield. They're they're part of a group, and that's that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to create this thing that was gonna just make money. You know, I wanted to create something that was gonna be this unity of of humans around something that was important. And now I realize that that importance is um, is being outside, and it's probably I will be honest with you, it's probably around trout you know yeah, i mean it would be cool to branch out and do other things but i'm 45 years old but i mean i i don't think i'm gonna turn jp ross into some company that's gonna you know knock a door on sage but i will tell you that the people that i know the people that buy rods from me a lot of them have my personal number a lot of them text me oh i'm sure you know tell me i heard this podcast and i really appreciated it tell me that they want something new that matters to me absolutely what also matters is when you showed up here. You're, you're, you know, in case the the, the listeners or viewers don't know that we're, we're we're in in this camp that 
you're a part of. And when you showed up here, you handed me a fly box, which is coming full circle with your logo on it, not the shield, with your logo on it that reminds me of my first encounter of you all the way back to that first fly box. So, you know, that that um, community that you've built, that sort of followership and brotherhood and sisterhood, because I will say that my wife and daughters were at that first great Camp Sagamore event. and. I sent you a photograph of my daughter, mm-hmm. Victoria, wearing a J.P. Ross hat. She will not relinquish that thing. That's one of her <laughs> treasured objects. That's awesome. And, you know, there she was. Uh, I think it was Lake Cumberland, and I'm fly fishing, and she's wearing that. She's an attractive young lady, you know, getting ready to graduate from, from Cornell. And, uh, you know, I, I took that picture because I was hoping you might use it for your, your marketing campaign or something, and I'm sure that's what she was thinking. Well, I can't, I can't <laughs> post some. I mean, I can with your approval, but yeah. I mean, it's like, Jesus. She she has given the approval as okay. well. Okay. Well. Because she recognizes, she was eight when we first did that, or nine. And she got her first fly casting lesson from one of your friends. Not from me, not from dad, but from one of those guys Mitch, that was... I think it, I think it was Mitch. It, yeah. it might, might very well have been. He was a former Marine. Yeah. That's right. He was prior service, and, and he and I shared that uh, moment. Um, but Victoria has seen her whole life that this this work is important to me. It's part of my identity. It's part of it clicks into this broader thing that I was yapping about earlier, having to do with my you know philosophical and um, theoretical and epistemological mission in life, which is to convince people, to show people, to put on a guide hat and say, these are pathways and portals into a 21st century land ethic, a 21st century version of ourselves as part of nature. And your influence on me and your partnership in that mission with me is, you know, treasure. So the question is, is there hope in regards to humanity? Well, you asked that earlier, and I I don't think I answered it well last time around, but now after having said these things, I, I, I maintain even more strongly that I do believe there is hope. It takes leadership, though. Absolutely. It takes... I'm going to stand before my department and, and other members of the, of the faculty of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell Tuesday, a few days from now, and I'm going to exhort them that it takes leadership. And if you want to talk about being worried about climate change and what are we going to do in the science, then then everybody needs to get their head out of their ass and stop preaching to the choir. You know, we need to talk. We need to talk to quote unquote Bubba. We need to talk to the guy in the red hat with the white letters on it. We need to figure out how to have these conversations about who we are in nature and 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 walk into those conversations with the shield recognizing that if I can talk to you or somebody about brook trout and where they live and whether or not they're going to survive, we're going to have a good conversation. Right. If I show up wearing a doctor's coat and a stethoscope and, and my Cornell University Ivy League hat, people are going to tell me to get the hell out of here. So that's where I think there's hope is building relationships, creating that network, that kind of brotherhood like you've done in, in, in I find inspiration. I take I take inspiration from what Trout Power is, and I I'm going to go tell everybody about this on Tuesday in the College of Ag and Life Sciences, and say this is a way to do this. This is the way. Well, um, 
I wish you luck on this. I think you're gonna. <laughs> I think I think you're gonna do a good job. And I will say that if somebody, if 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 nobody stands up for it, then nothing's gonna happen. So you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. If no matter what, good job. Well, and 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 to you. I mean, I think the point really is the evangelical notion, your instinct, your evangelical instinct resonates with me and and my I don't know upbringing or what have you and that evangelical instinct is I'm not afraid of that anymore thanks to Trout Power (laughs) I'm gonna go I'm gonna go tell people that people who are really locked into empirical thinking like these are scientists brilliant scientists but tell them that gotta you gotta get out of your head and get out into the world and explain find ways Use me. Use whoever. Find ways to have conversations with people to help them become part of this and not continue to think of themselves as separate from it. Well, in in closing to this, I think that the fact that there are there are people out there that are thinking about this, you and me, and you're here. Here you are. You're going to go talk to them about it. Means that there's potential. I agree. And what motivates me more than anything is potential. And um, what excites me, what actually makes me feel great, is when I'm part of a group that gets behind something. I think that that's things that's elite. That's the leader in me. Is that what really makes me feel good? Is not me being the one. It's that I was a I was part of something where there's multiple people that are getting behind something. I think that's why I love. And I still love Trout Power so much. I mean, it's bittersweet. I, I told you this. I told everybody this. Yeah. I was going to give it, right? I was going to say, like, I'm going to, you know, Trout Power is going to be led by somebody else. It's going to become its own thing. And it did. And it is. And it's doing great. And it's hard because I'm still alive, right? It wasn't like, oh, Jordan died and now Trout Power has to, has to exist. The succession plan of the organization was we're going to create something so that it can go on while, so I can see it. Right. Yeah, and and the thing that this is the hardest thing about leadership, and I've led in a few places, and you know, I'm a field grade officer in the New York Guard and so forth. A big part of leadership is followership, and so what you've done uh, by stepping away from the organization is you've created a kind of legacy where there isn't a single person involved in Trowpar that doesn't see your fingerprints and doesn't want to make sure that we're doing that we're we're acting in ways that are appropriate to your vision um and that's not to deify you or you know create you know a god out of you it's to honor your passion and your commitment to the you know judging the water by the trout that live in it and and judging ourselves by our ability to take care of that water so you know uh, all I can say is, you know, Trout Power and, and J.P. Ross um, are a kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like some sort of a serendipity. It, it's not something that can be repeated. And it's, it, it's, these things happen because they're needed. You know, they're, these things evolve or emerge in systems because it's what's needed at the time. 
and so your your idea that you were that maybe you were clairvoyant I think is is the correct one and the the idea of of what you make and what you're what you've created in terms of community is is timely and you know if, if you can uh, pass that along to your children so that they continue that you know, the world will be a better place you get to close your remark cheers Keith I love you thank you I went back and looked at the original statement the original mission statement for drop power and the words read honoring clean water not by its clarity but by the wild trout that live in it fitting that here I am the guy that came up with it and I was the first one to use the word judge so anyway that proves that we're imperfect um I thought that it was important that Keith is hopeful that we can change this around I was on another podcast recently and I thought that I would in closing just mention to everybody that we do have to positively share how to use the outdoors the right way and we have to have these conversations with people so next time you are out there and you see somebody doing something that you think maybe they can improve on take a chance and talk to them and try to do it positively this is the only place we got we're gonna have to make it work Thanks for listening to In The Scene Podcast. This is J.P. Ross signing off. Keep a lookout for some upcoming episodes. I hope you like the new format. Have a great day. And remember, get outside, simply fish, and be happy. In The Scene Podcast is brought to you by J.P. Ross Fly Rods. Check us out at J.P. Ross Fly Rods dot com or smallstreamflyfishing.com.